The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Rainmaker FM. Hey, hey, welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your host, Kelton Reed, here to take you on yet another tour of the habits, habitats, and brains of renowned writers. The iconic international best-selling author of 14 novels, including the era-defining Generation X, Tales for an Accelerated Culture, Douglas Copeland paid a visit to the show to rap with me about his latest collection, his strange ritual for starting a new book, and the timeless difficulties of getting published. Mr. Copeland started his career in journalism before rising to prominence after his acclaimed best-selling debut in 1991. Since Generation X, he's become an internationally recognized visual artist, designer, and author of 14 novels, two short story collections, a dozen nonfiction books, and scripts for the stage, TV, and film. In addition to his many contributions to traditional and online publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Vice, Doug has written and performed for England's Royal Shakespeare Company and is a columnist for the Financial Times of London. His latest, titled Bit Rot, is a collection of more than 65 thought-provoking essays, stories, and meditations on the different ways in which 20th century notions of the future are being shredded. The social critic and cultural observer has been prognosticating on how technology affects our brains since the advent of the internet. In this file, Doug and I discuss how a visual artist became a generation-defining fiction author, the writer's love of long-form journalism, why listeners of this show have won the biggest lottery in history, how a Canadian professor in the 60s predicted the influence of the internet as we know it today, and the magic of writing on airplanes. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all-new Studio Press Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers, as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. We are rolling today on The Writer Files with an esteemed guest, 
Douglas Copeland is joining us. Thank you so much for hopping on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. So if you aren't familiar with Doug's work, um, I'd be surprised, but he is an artist, designer, international best-selling author of novels, short stories, biography, uh, quite a bit of journalism out there in the world, I think. Um, but yeah, you've worked in the visual arts, you've done a lot of uh, um, design work, and I'm guessing that you did the the uh, artwork for your new book, the cover and... and uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at the back of BitRot, the brand new um, collection of stories and essays, and your face is just kind of hovering there uh, behind the... Uh, the blurbs, which is kind of cool. Well, the whole author photo thing is just so corny and <laughs> out of date, isn't it? I usually most people just go to Google Images, see, okay, okay, got it, and that's all they need. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the cover, uh, yes, I did do myself. Um, everyone thinks I used to do all my covers, but I didn't. And finally, the one that they sent for this was just so dismal. I said, you know what? I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it turned out very well. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, to say that you, you know, wear a lot of hats would be an understatement. Clearly, you, you do many different things. You're kind of a, um, uh, I, I, I wouldn't really know how to sum it up. I mean, looking at your resume is very um, intimidating. But as a writer, um, you've had this pretty storied career. And I'd love to take you back a little bit, um, maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with your your amazing journey. Um, could you take us back maybe to like those moments before, uh, you know, Generation X um, was commissioned or, you know, kind of all that craziness happened to you? Um, you know, how do you got here? How you became this best-selling author of now? I think it's thirteen novels and and all these other fantastic works. Um, how, how'd you get here, Doug? Uh, I, I think my story is similar to most other people I've met who write long-form fiction, which is that they were doing. I was doing something completely unconnected to writing, and then somewhere around twenty-eight or so something clicks in and like, oh, I, I think I should maybe write some long form fiction. So I, I don't think I've ever actually met a writer who came directly out of a creative writing program or a, a master's lit program. Uh, there's something about real world living. I, I was, um, uh, I went to art school and uh, trained in sculpture and typography and uh, spent a lot of time living in Japan, working there. And, and I'd never really thought of words one way or the other. And then in 87, uh, back when answering, uh, answering machines were still a big thing, like how oh, we got an answering machine, I, I bought one, I plugged it in. And the first call I got was the editor of the local city magazine. And come on down, we want you to write for us. And yeah. And well, uh, I haven't written a thing in my life. Well, I read the postcard you sent to Don's wife is on a refrigerator at the party last night. It was really funny. So you think you should write for us. <laughs> okay. And then two days later, I was down in Beverly Hills writing about this sort of art world scoundrel and uh, spent three days there, wrote the story in one day. And this was back when journalism paid a lot. And wait, wait, I mean, 
I had all that fun and enjoyed writing it. I get paid for it. <laughs> and, and at the time, I, I had a big sculpture studio in Vancouver, and, and anything to do with sculpture is expensive because it's third dimension and the prices of materials and anyhow. So it became a very quick, enjoyable way of paying my studio bills. And then I realized that there was something deeper that was going on. And uh, I went to Toronto about six months later and took a job uh, working in a business magazine as a sort of, you know, junior staffer. And then probably between that first phone call and moving out to the middle of nowhere to write Generation X was maybe 18 months. That was all it took wow. to go from zero to fiction. Um, and I look back on that period of my life and what I remember most about it was chronic fatigue syndrome, which I don't, I don't even know if it exists anymore. <laughs> but for, for that 18 month window, I'd wake up every morning and at around an hour after waking up, like, like being unplugged or something. And yet I got so much stuff done and it ended one day magically when I started writing fiction. So maybe there's a connection there somewhere. Interesting. Interesting. Well, since then, since that, uh, trip to the desert coachella i believe well everyone knows about coachella now but back then it was just completely undiscovered sort of nixon era fantasy underneath the, <laughs> a, a glass dome i mean it wasn't mid-century it wasn't gay it wasn't trendy it wasn't coachella it was just this place where time froze yeah. somewhere around like when pat nixon had a bowl of Special K in 1971 or something. It, it, anyhow, <laughs> um, it, it was not. It was not the Coachella people know now. No, no, the the one that people are uh, uh, dropping um, exorbitant amounts of money to go and and visit and do drugs and all that stuff. No, and the weather is just appalling. So. <laughs> And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and right on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, well, since then, uh, you've published, I believe it's 13 novels, um, collections, short stories, eight nonfiction books. I mean, the, 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 uh, the list here is pretty intimidating and a lot of, uh, works for, uh, 
both screen and stage, including a, a TV show that you that you uh, produced, I believe. So that's uh, pretty pretty exciting. A lot of successes there. Um, so uh, it looks like the best place to find all of that agglomerated in one spot is your fantastic website, um, copeland.com. And I'll link to that. Um, is there any anywhere else we want to point listeners to to, to see your work? I mean, oh, it's, uh, it's everywhere. I, I, I do a, uh, a monthly column for the Financial Times of London Weekend yeah. Magazine. That's out there. I mean, I, it, it looks like I do a lot, but in my head... I feel almost like I've got locked in syndrome. Like I really feel like I'm wasting my life and I'm not using my time properly. And <laughs> like even picking up a sock is like, why am I picking it up? It, it's like I'd be doing something more permanent with that amount of energy. Yeah. It, it's just gotten kind of weird inside my head lately. And I'm finding it very hard to read. And I don't know if that's something you're experiencing as well, or if it's just me, or is it some massive phenomenon where reading fiction on a Kindle or a book is just like, oh, get to the point. It's not, <laughs> yeah. It's not fast enough. And, and I feel like a, a terrible human being for reading a fraction of what I used to read in the period, like in a month. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where did that part of my brain go? I, I, is it me? Is it everyone? Is it all this, you know, the cloud? I mean, where is this coming from? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, um, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I know you write a lot about it and, you know, kind of in your <laughs> observations of uh, the modern contemporary um, syndrome that we were all kind of facing, um, you know, this uh, speeded up fast food of the brain <laughs> nation and and world, uh, you know, with all this interconnectedness, it's like, how, yeah, how do, how do writers... Uh, really stay focused and, and research and so yeah let's talk about your pro- let's talk about your process like how do you stay um, how do you stay f- focused and, and actually produce um, writing for your column and then you know anything else you're working on are you working on another book now or are you or you turn to uh, more well, visual stuff well the writing takes place in time and artwork largely takes place in space so I, I think they come from separate and non-competing parts of the id or the the brain or however you want it to uh, describe that sort of thing. I began writing this column, um, which is, I guess you would call it serial nonfiction. And every month they take a subject and analyze it. And I was very nervous in doing so because I'd never actually done that kind of nonfiction before. And, uh, and it turns out I really love doing it. And I didn't expect that. I'm happy it happened. And now I find a lot of energy is going to nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a TV project I'm working on right now, as we're all living the, the golden age of television. And mm-hmm. I'd like to be a part of that. I mean, I, I, I've always enjoyed being in the world and of the world. And every year I take on two or three completely unrelated to writing projects because I meet people I would never otherwise have met, I go places I never would have otherwise been and experienced all this life. And yeah. I, I, it just, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 55. And what I'm finding amazing is that it, it just goes so quickly. And you know, I look in the mirror and like, 
that's not me. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, if, think of all the, the planet we live on and then the sun and all these the galaxies and there's trillions of them and each galaxy has a million stars and there's all this matter out there and, and antimatter and yet if all that matter like you and me and you know, if you're listening all the matter in the, pl- the entire universe we got to experience life whatever this thing called life is and you know it's literally the the winning the biggest lottery in the universe and knowing that having the sentience to appreciate it how are you going to get the most out of having been alive or being alive here and it seems like this uh not so much a gift but a responsibility i think which is why i always take on all these crazy projects and you know go to russia yeah russia why not for six weeks to do something and uh uh when i say it keeps life interesting it actually more than a bigger speech it keeps this magical thing called life interesting i think that's my philosophy and i i have home base here i live in vancouver i'm away about half the time i go out and i have adventures i come back and so instead of i think of myself just as an adventurer maybe in a sort of an old-fashioned tradition. And, uh, and, and as the times change, as I change, fiction's a part of it, but it's fiction reconfigured into other formats, again, like long-form television or nonfiction, which is quasi-fictional. <laughs> Bit, Bit Rot, which is the, uh, the book we're sort of here to discuss, I guess. Yeah. It's a comp compilation of nonfiction pieces I've done, some published, some not. Uh, fiction, which I thought was experimental, but as time goes on, I think it, um, it's fiction that I want to create in the reader, that same sense of weird magic you get when you're online and you fall down a rabbit hole and suddenly you're like looking at like a model railroad in the Czech Republic and then like, vroom, you're looking at, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower's Wikipedia page or something. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think that is very much a part of the modern experience. And so how, do, how does fiction reflect that? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't believe, I think, you know, some writers are notorious for you know, bunkering themselves and turning out the lights and focusing purely on the words. And uh, I used to do that a little bit. But now I think, no, 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 you're out in the world, write about the world as you inhabit it. So that's, that's what I do. Yeah. The book. Well, you've, re- you've actually written about it. And um, I'll, I'll link to this, this uh, piece. I'm actually at my happiest when I'm writing on a plane. Because um, oh, I, yeah. I kind of think it sums up what you're, what you're talking about, how, and, and you've written about this often, you know, kind of about, about the, the um, you know, how, how, how the whole, everything's been kind of, you know, turned into this, again, this fractal sense of what you said uh, about falling down a rabbit hole. Um, so it sounds like your writing process is pretty uh, broken up, but it's working for you because obviously Bitrot, you know, kind of traverses a lot of those, 
a lot of that terrain. There's that. There's this great nonfiction. I mean, there's so much in there, and it's really, um, it's been called kind of binge worthy reading of, <laughs> of the of the Copeland brain. Um, but yeah, it's it's so cool that it really it really is capturing um, kind of everything that you're you're talking about. This kind of um, ephemeral nature of where we are now. And I know that, you know, I, I, I have the McLuhan uh, biography that you, that you wrote here. Um, just kind of, I was checking it out as a reference and, and, you know, he was talking about um, that moment that I think we're all experiencing right now. So um, the, the, the thing about Marshall McLuhan is most people under the age of 40 really probably don't know him or much about him and he has the two famous sound bites there was uh, we all live in the global village and that the medium is the message and so he was this crusty fuddy-duddy guy who was teaching at the university of toronto in canada in 1962 who and he was quite uh retrograde and he uh was quite religious and really didn't like the physical world very much but through a chain of never to be repeated circumstances he was able to anticipate the internet and what it would feel like and uh how it would change the way our sentences work and uh, tom wolf famously wrote an essay or i think it was esquire called what if he's right <laughs> back in back in the early 60s and, and what's happened is McLuhan was right about almost everything, uh, except he didn't know the interface of what he was. Uh, this new thing was going to look like or feel mm-hmm. like. So he'll use, uh, you know, 18th century pamphleteers in England to, to describe what we would now call PayPal or uh, eBay or online dating. And he actually he anticipated the sort of the pornography explosion. He said that the world will be turned into a, a bordello without any walls mm. and that was like his you had to approach everything metaphorically or through liter, uh, literary culture and which made him sound kind of nuts but you know if you've been right up to 2017 chances are he's going to be right as we move further on so yeah. uh, I got dragged kicking and screaming into doing that biography but I'm really glad I did yeah yeah that's pretty fascinating um that you can uh, turn around and do that, and then um, and then uh, do fiction. So, are you, you know, as you are you turning to episodic TV as a as a kind of a um, an outlet for the part of your brain that wants to do fiction, or are you actually working on another piece of uh, longer fiction now? I, I'm working in a. I guess I, I call it uh, uh, 100 sermons. I think maybe I'll make it 99 because 99 is a more interesting number. <laughs> And and actually doing, I, I suppose you'd say secular theology um, is it, uh, addressing head on, I guess the ins and outs and ups and downs of the soul, or trying to locate the soul, or uh, in the, the art world, uh, they talk about imminence. I suppose you would talk about that older well, world as well, and. And that's where all the philosophers always get sort of hung up and start becoming angels dancing on the heads of pins. It's, well, I mean, I think most of us have the sensation that there is a holiness that pervades uh, certainly life on earth. And uh, we, we talked about a bit earlier, but how does that holiness operate? You know, I mean, I'm also very scientific. So like, you know, is there, is it the gravitational field or, 
is it uh, like in an accuracy and like one of the up or down quarks or how does holiness exist? And I believe it does, but I'm also agnostic. So, so I think that's where 100, excuse me, 99 uh, <laughs> sermons is coming from. Hmm. I, I Stephen Merritt was actually going to write uh, his 100 love songs, except I think project came to an organic conclusion. He called it 69 love songs, which was sort of like cheeky. So <laughs> who knows what the number will finally be, but that's what I'm working on now. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you're a writer who just kind of... Um you're practicing some kind of productive, productive procrastination is something that Austin Kleon talks about. He's also, you know, he's also a, a visual artist, um, who's a writer and, uh, you know, kind of like he, he has an office where he's got like three different desks set up. So he's doing like the visual art and then he's doing the writing part. And then he just kind of will move from one thing to the other as the muse pulls him around the room. Is that, is that how you find yourself kind of working? Or I know you, I know you're talking about writing on planes and you talk about writing in, in, you know, if you're on deadline, you're working in a hotel room oftentimes. Writing is I think, best done in the morning before everyone arrives at the studio or other workers arrive. And you've got that magic lucidity window of maybe two and a half hours. And that's where most conception happens. The only other place I can really conceive, there's two other places. Uh, one is on an airplane, which is great because there's no Wi-Fi, to be honest. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and there's a super focus. And also, there's a chemical thing. Like You get like one or two glasses of white wine on a plane with the <laughs> decreased oxygen. Mm-hmm. And it's like magic. The words just flow. And then, of course, two hours later, it's over. And the third place I like to get writing done is in the... International House of Pancakes on the <laughs> north side of Interstate 15 in Las Vegas. Uh, I have this tradition of starting books there. So I'll go down, I'll check into my uh, my booth. Yes, that's right. A writer who has a, a superstition, <laughs> who'd have thought. And, uh, and I begin it there. And I mean, since Las Vegas used to be this piddly little thing, and now it's just morphed into this massive place, but the IHOP continues to exist. And so I will continue going there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, all right. Well, uh, I, w- I will ask you about writer's block. Uh, how do you feel about it? Is it a thing? Have you ever experienced it? Is it a myth? Oh, writer's block is real. And I don't know of any other profession that has. Uh, 
analogous syndrome. But the thing about writer's block is that, well, obviously you can't write, but you perpetualize it and you catastrophize it. And like, oh my God, I can't write. My life is over. Um, and of course, it always comes back in the end. I'm curious to hear what other writers have to say on this subject. I, I think in the end, it's probably something really banal, but beneath the surface, like maybe you changed your brand of B vitamins or something, <laughs> and, they for, and they forgot to put B6 in the new batch or something. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, is, is it Occam's razor? Is the easiest answer is probably the right answer. Yeah, yeah. And I think something very of the world which causes writer's block, unless it's cosmic. So, you, mm. so you're always bargaining in your head, like, oh, maybe do something. <laughs> oh, but, oh, curse those muses. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that, that the writers um, I've spoken to kind of run the gamut to, you know, from, you know, it's total bullshit. Yeah, it's kind of like impotence. We don't talk about it, uh, but it is real. So before we wrap up here, do you think you can define creativity in your own words? I know so much of uh, what you do involves some elements of uh, creativity. Creativity. A few things come to mind. Um, my hair went gray and white prematurely, and so I look a lot wiser than I maybe am. So I get, so I get asked to do these speeches for graduation ceremonies. The question I get a lot, mostly from the parents who are worried about the kids, is, well, you know, what, what can we do to future-proof the kids? And I mean, what do you mean? Well, is this endless like, assault of new technologies coming from every direction, impacting all parts of our human experience? How can you make yourself safe from all that? And, and, and what I say is that you, know, you have to find out what it is you enjoy doing and then do it. Because if you don't enjoy doing it, and you, you know, succeed, you'll, you'll be contemptuous of your success or you won't enjoy it. And, and you have to accept that maybe you enjoy something that's not going to make you a billion dollars. Maybe, you know, if you like working with shoes, just work with shoes. And, you know, if, if I, there's something about the creation of new images I've always liked. And whatever it takes to get me there is what I do. And I, I like creating new ways of working with words. Ditto. Um, so I've been, so I don't know, I, mean, I think they should have a course starting in kindergarten is like, what do you like doing? And you might have students who spend, you know, 12, 13 years and they still don't figure out what it is they like doing. And then, okay, well, well you know, you're working in advertising then. You know, also the other thing too, if you have 10 ideas, one of them's going to be a hit. One of them is going to be an absolute disaster. Two of them will be pretty good. You know, two will be like, eh. One or two will be like, don't talk about it. And one's just a flaming disaster. So sometimes people get the flaming disaster first and they just have to realize it's actually more of a probabilistic situation that if they try it again, they'll probably get one of the better responses. It's so easy for me to psych myself out. And I think for people in general, and I don't know where that comes from, but whenever I find myself trying to psych myself out, it means I should really be doing it because like for example, the Marshall McLuhan biography. I was like, why am I phone calls to my agent and stuff, and that came out. And I learned, I learned so much from that experience. Yeah, just shake it up. You know, not everything's going to work. Not everything's going to fail. You know, it's a, it's a it's a mix. Words of wisdom from Douglas Copeland. 
whose fantastic new collection traverses the workings of Doug's brain with more than 65 thought-provoking essays, stories, and meditations on the different ways in which 20th century notions of the future are being shredded. Finally, do you have any advice for your fellow scribes on how to keep the ink flowing and the cursor moving? One thing I've noticed about publishing or being published, this has been going on like 28 years now for me, is that it's always been just as hard to get published as it is right now. That if it's not one thing, it's another. But it's almost like Avogadro's number or, or pi or something that the difficulty in getting published factor. Um, it, it's in some ways it's easier now, in some ways it's harder, but it averages out about the same amount. So um, I don't think you can say there was once a golden age of you know new writer getting published. It, it's always been the same. Yes. And thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate you doing this and best of luck with all your future endeavors. Please come back and talk with us again. Well, it's a joy to have met you. Thanks a lot, Kelton. Thanks so much for joining me on another tour of the writer's process. If you enjoy the Writer Files podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or review to help other writers find us. For more episodes or to leave a comment or a question, you can drop by writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you soon.